promise, Lord, never again. But I also know that you know what a weak willed person I am. Don't regret this, Lord. I'm a wonderful person. Gospel according to John, the twelfth chapter. Then Jesus cried aloud, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I've come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me should not remain in the darkness. I do not judge anyone who hears my words and does not keep them, for I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge. On the last day, the word that I have spoken will serve as judge, for I have not spoken on my own, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment about what to say and what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I speak, therefore I speak, just as the Father has told me. This is the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Let us pray. Gracious God, send forth your spirit by the power of your word to create faith, to forgive sin, and to grow our love for you and for one another. Amen. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True. Uh, 1976, in Trinidad, a gentleman was born by the name of Navi Charles. Now to about everyone in the room, none of you knows who I'm talking about. I'm guessing. Uh, But he goes by one name, most notably, just Navi, uh, just, just a single name like Beyonce or Rihanna or whatever. So make a guess what he does for a living. Anybody? Music? Okay. I get... Singer or something like that, maybe? Yeah, yeah. He's an entertainer. No, he's not a politician. Uh, he probably could be, though. <laughs> he's actually an impersonator. Now, who do you think he impersonates? Anyway. Politicians. Politicians. Entertainers. Entertainers. Okay, that's narrowing it down a little bit. A little bit. Uh, he's actually an impersonator of Michael Jackson. Not only is he an impersonator of Michael Jackson, he is the impersonator of Michael Jackson. If you want to book an impersonator of Michael Jackson for your party, he's who you call. You can't afford him, but he's who you call. We're we're not talking Elvis with the bad hair, the mutton chops, the zoot suits, jumping out of an airplane, doing a wedding at the same time, kind of an impersonator. He's had all of the plastic surgeries, okay? All of the plastic surgeries to look exactly like Michael Jackson post all of the plastic surgeries. Uh, he, he knows all the lyrics. He's got all the dance tunes. He's got the glove. Yeah. Uh, he actually has worked so hard on his voice so that when he speaks as Michael Jackson, he sounds exactly like him. If you had a regular conversation with him, with Navi Charles, he would have the accent from the islands. But he's worked on his impersonation, so he sounds just like Michael. 
He is so good at it that in 1992, Michael Jackson hired him to be his body double. He's the dude that they would send out to get all the reporters to follow him. So Michael could go to Walmart or wherever he was going to go. Right? He's also performed at a bunch of, of Michael's birthday parties. And then in 2017, the, I believe it was the Michael Jackson estate handpicked him to play Michael in the docudrama Searching for Neverland. So you can go on Amazon Prime or, or go and find it somewhere, and you'll be able to see Navi Charles playing Michael Jackson in a drama about the last three years of Michael Jackson's life. Now, see, the problem is, though, regardless of how many performances Navi does, regardless of how good he is at it, which he is very good at it, he's never going to be Michael Jackson. There's only one Michael Jackson, right? He, can do everything, he could do everything right, and he's never going to hit that note. He's never going to be able to moonwalk exactly the same way. He's never going to be able to do all of those things because Michael Jackson was Michael Jackson. And Navi has gained the fame. I bet he could even go out and trick some people into thinking that Michael Jackson's actually still alive, you know, like some of the Elvis impersonators do. You know. um, Elvis is dead, by the way, just if you're wondering. So is Michael. Um, but he's become a huge, huge star. And yet, Michael Jackson is Michael Jackson, and Navi is Navi. So in other words, you can impersonate him. You can try your best, but you're never going to be him. Now, to argue this morning that what we are faced with in, in Revelation 17 is exactly the same thing. An impersonator. An impersonator. Someone trying to be someone else. Last week, we had uh, the, three, the three beasts. We had the dis- doubt. We had the despair. We had the fear. We had the horror. And then between chapter 13, where we ended last week, and chapter 17, where we take off here, we have both judgment and glory hitting us. We have judgment with Christ seated on a cloud using a big sickle, and he harvests the earth. But then we have the temple of God opened, and God's glory pours forth and overcomes everything. And then we have the angels with their bowls pouring them out in in almost mimicry of the plagues of Egypt, bringing judgment and death, bodies everywhere. And then we get to chapter 17, the great impersonator. Or she goes by a different name in verse 1, the great whore. I hate that word. I'm not joking. I hate that word. For me, that's on par with the B word. That's a four-letter filth word, even though it's got more than four letters. For those Star Trek fans, it's a colorful metaphor. I, I don't like that word. It's, it's, a, it's a disgusting word that I would never want to use in my own language, at least in the Revised Standard Version, the New King James Version. They actually use the word harlot. I like that. It's kind of a cute word, right? It's a little colloquial. makes you think of black and white cowboy movies or pirates, right? Arr, I'm going to go get me a harlot, Arr, right? It's kind of cute. Oh, you know, harlot. I, I can go with that. But whore is one of those words that it, it paints this, this picture that none of us would really want to paint in front of grandma, I don't think. And yet the scriptures gift it to us. They, not only is it given to us, it's basically thrown in our faces. Just to give you a taste, I, I made sure to translate that word that is used here, both as a noun, a verb, participle, all these different things, just in this reading, just a snippet. Come, let me show you the judgment of the great whore 
who sits upon the many waters, whom the kings who dwell upon the earth go whoring after and are made drunk from the wine of her whorings, the mother of whores. I feel bad for even using the word, but there's power in that word to paint this picture, rather grotesque picture of the world's attempts to find Jesus anywhere else. Anywhere else. And they'll look to any impersonator for it, or even worse, for us in the church. The amount of times that we will dress up Jesus to make him look a particular way because maybe he's more palatable that way. Or as a former professor at the seminary once said, dressing up Jesus in drag just to make him a little bit more fun than what we think we need from Jesus. Now, politically speaking, if you want to get down to the nuts and bolts of it, the whore is Rome in the first century. It says she's seated on many waters. We find out later in verse 15 that this is the picture of many tribes and tongues and nations. Thinking empire of that, of that day, Rome in the first century covered what would have been vast amounts of the known world. And they would have had people of many tribes and tongues and languages under their control. And then you have the kings of the earth who come to whore after her, to, to, to get what they can from her. And these could be those pictures of the subjugated vassal kings because as Rome would go and conquer, of course, they needed people in power like Herod and, and others. These, these kings knew where their bread was buttered. They knew where the gravy train was. And so they went to Rome. Rome could give them almost anything. And then you have her sitting on that beast with seven heads and we're later told in verse 9, those seven heads are seven mountains. Um, Rome... Rome is on seven hills. And then how's she dressed? How's she dressed? Arrayed in purple, bedecked in gold and and fine jewelry, holding a cup, this picture of royalty, of power, of of leisure, of of, of beauty, of glory. And she's seated. The, the, The picture of being seated like that gives this picture of dominion, of strength, of authority. In that day, Rome would have so-called brought peace to that realm of the world. You wouldn't want to fight against Rome, would you? Things never ended very well for many people. And there'd be almost the symbol of salvation for them. This idea that Rome was saving people from themselves, maybe. And then you had the power and the security there found in, in Rome. Now, maybe what we should do before we move on is maybe we need to contrast this with Christ, with the picture that we have of Christ. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Mark chapter 15. To Mark chapter 15, beginning at verse 16. Most of us have heard this about a billion times if you've ever been to church on Good Friday. Then the soldiers led him, that is Jesus, into the courtyard of the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole cohort, and they clothed him in a purple cloak. And after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on him, and they began saluting him, Hail, King of the Jews. 
They struck his head with a reed, spat upon him, knelt down in homage to him. After mocking him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. The great whore shows up. She's all dressed up, looking good. She's, she's, she's made sure to get all of her layers of makeup done, had her hair done. She's got Tiffany jewelry all over her. But then what do we have Jesus? He shows up, gets stripped naked. He has to be clothed in that purple, and it's only done to mock him, to make fun of him. And then he's not given a a golden crown. Instead, it's this crown of thorns, this, this imagery of suffering. And then he's stripped again and led away. This is his coronation ceremony as the king of the Jews. But we get a different picture with the great whore, don't we? The harlot. And then she has a cup, right? She has a cup in her hand. What's it full of? Abominations and fornications, two words you don't use in front of grandma, again. Abominations being those abhorrent things that you wouldn't want to use in regular conversation. Fornications, we we always sexualize it, but it's basically just using someone for your own advantage. Seeing someone as just a thing that you can do whatever you want with. And it's she has it full to the brim of that, full also of the blood of the saints and the martyrs. A cup full of sin. Well, Jesus has a cup too, right? Right? Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and all of them drank from it. He said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. The blood of the saints and the martyrs are in her cup. Her cup's full of sin, evil, pain, violence, suffering. What's his cup full of? himself poured out for you for the forgiveness of all those sins. Very different type of Jesus we're given. And I say that because we have two saviors presented to us. We have the one here of this Christ given to us. And then we have this picture of Rome, this picture of power, this picture of, uh, of the great whore in chapter 17 of Revelation. And I would say it is two saviors. It is two forms of salvation. You have a pretend savior and the real one. You have a savior at the, at the expense of violence, of destruction, of conquest. And then you have one who's brought about for the saving of those that have come under the violence I'd say faux salvation, fake salvation is basically found for us in any place that we think we find our focus, that we think we find our our purpose, our enoughness, our, our, our ability to try and last as long as it remains. Because what we find as we read it some more into chapter 17 and 18 is a great lament goes up from the earth over the downfall of Rome, over the destruction of Rome. Why? Because all the countries, all the people, all the kings have invested. They've placed themselves in the hands of Rome. And now they're told that the, Rome is gone. This salvation, this savior, this power that you've placed yourselves under is done. And they throw up a lament. Because their gravy train is cut off. All the money's gone. The position that they thought they had is, is done. Well, let me ask you. 
Is that only anachronistic to the first century, or is that something we can take with us today? Because the reality is, is the goal from up here is for me to tell you why this matters. Why it matters. I would say, no, it's not anachronistic. It's not foreign to us. How much glory do we give to our government? How much power, how much trust do we place in our politicians? I don't care who you voted for in the last election, by the way. I'm an equal opportunity offender. So how much, how much trust do we place in them? How, how, how much weight do we place in our politicians to be saviors? And don't sit there and tell me you don't, okay? Because along with many of you, I heard a speech this last week from, from the White House, which I took away from it, basically saying, we're here to save you. Just listen to us, do what we tell you, and we're going to save you. And in some ways, there was a push to almost dehumanize a segment of our population, to make them less than. But it doesn't matter. That's been the way of our country for a few years now, right? Red, blue, vaccinated, unvaccinated, Vikings fans, Packer fans. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Well, let me flip it over to the other side because both sides thing to th- seem to think, we, we, we seem to think that we're going to have a savior on Capitol Hill. We have an election coming up, right? Tuesday? Right? What's the tagline for this recall election? We have a state to save. We have a state to save. Really? Do we? Is salvation how much we pay for, for gasoline? How many homeless we have on the street and whether our kids wear masks in school? Is that salvation? I don't know. If your party loses on Tuesday, are you going to despair? Are you going to become angry? Are you going to protest? Because see, the problem is, is that every year we get fooled. Every election, we take another sinner, we dress them up like Jesus, and we hope that people won't notice. We turn our politicians into these faux deities, into, into some, and, it's, and it's not new either, but I don't know why we keep thinking that we can do the same thing over and over again. To borrow a line from The Hunt for Red October, if you've ever seen the movie, I'm a politician, which means I'm a cheat and a liar, and when I'm not kissing babies, I'm stealing their lollipops. But it's nothing new. The the scriptures are full of God speaking to his people, not to whom we would call sinners, quote-unquote, but to his people and saying, why do you keep prostituting yourselves after other gods? after other saviors. It's all over the scriptures. You have Deuteronomy 31, where Moses is told, you're about to die, and these people are going to prostitute themselves after somebody else. Isaiah 1, where Jerusalem is first called the faithful city and then called the whore. Jeremiah 2, where he pulls no punches and he calls the people of Israel a donkey in heat, sniffing at the wind. And then we have Jeremiah 31, where we always love that one because that's the new covenant that's given to us, right? The, the new heart, the new desires. But before that, it says, I'm going to do a new covenant because the old one, your father's broke, even though I was your husband. Even though I was your husband. And don't let me get started on Hosea. If you haven't read Hosea, read it this afternoon. It will take you no time at all, but it's just another picture 
of what I would say is just the human condition. But how often it is that our idolatry is just our search for another deity to be an imitation Christ, an imitation Savior, where we become like Peter, right? He makes his great confession, oh, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then they go for a walk. And Jesus says, here's my resume. This is what it's going to look like. I'm going to be handed over, beaten, crucified, dead, buried. But on the third day, I'm going to rise. And Peter goes, oh, no, 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 no. We have the acts booked for the inauguration. We have the parade planned. We have the treats. We have everything. No, I don't want that kind of Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. You want the things of man, not the things of God. Idolatry also comes to us in the form of silence, where we want to silence God, we want to silence Christ. We don't want them to speak because either one, they're going to rebuke us for our sin, or two, forgive it outright without any expectation on our part. We don't like either of those things. If you notice, the great whore doesn't speak. She's spoken about. But then Christ does speak. Chapter 19, I don't think, you maybe saw it, I don't know. But he shows up, right, on a horse. Big horse, mighty, Samson-like, army, victorious warrior. And he has a weapon. What's that weapon? What's the weapon? It's a sword. Where's the sword? Is it in his hand? It's in his mouth. Because his word comes to us and it speaks. It chops down all of our idols, all of our fake Jesuses, all of our Jesuses dressed in drag get cut down so that he can be the Jesus we need. Because then he comes to speak, with us, speak to us in his word, comes to speak of us of grace, of mercy, the very things that we don't get from our politicians. Think of John 8. Most of you know it, but those of you who don't, it's a chapter in the Bible where a woman is caught in adultery, and most commentators say she was a prostitute. That's how they were able to catch her. I always wonder why they didn't bring the John with her. The Bible says he's supposed to be stoned too. But anyways, she gets thrown at Jesus' feet because the leadership wants to know, Jesus, are you going to be the type of God that we like, which is the God that commands obedience and justice? He says, so Moses in the law tells us we're supposed to stone her. What do you say, Jesus? And Jesus kneels down and starts writing in the dirt. And, and Mike Warnke, a former uh, Christian comedian, once said he thought that maybe he was writing down the names of all their mistresses so, that, so they all kind of knew would be convicted. But then he stands up, and what does he say? You without sin... Cast the first stone. And they all drop their stones and they walk away. And here he's left with this woman cowering. She's shivering, half naked, in the ground. And Jesus turns to her and raises up her chin and says, Daughter, who condemns you? Who condemns you? She looks around and she sees one pair of sandals. She looks at him and says, No one, my Lord. And he looks at her and says, Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. I don't condemn you of your harlotry. And I know many of you are sitting there, oh yes, but then he said, go, go leave your life of sin. No, we're too fast to go there. Stay in the grace for just a moment. Neither do I condemn you. That's how he deals with us harlots. Or you go to Matthew 21. Jesus tells a parable of two sons. He says, one 
gets asked by his father, go work in my field, and he says, no, I won't, and then he goes. The other son gets asked, go work in my field, and he says, yes, I will, Dad, and then he doesn't, and then he asks the the leadership, the, the religious leaders, the righteous people, who did the will of the father, the first or the last? And they say the first one. He says, that's right. And he says, truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. Imagine that saying to the righteous ones, the whores and the traitors are going in ahead of you. Why is that? Because as sinners, we are so bent on harlotry, if I can use that word for us so bent on finding another Jesus. But what does that do? It includes us in this group. It makes us the woman in John 8. And what brings them into the kingdom? Is it super spirituality? Is it some sort of good work? Is it sackcloth and ashes? No. He says, because they what? Believed. Change that word and make it trust. That's why I chose the gospel text that I did, because you hear that word believe over and over again. It says trust, trust, trust. That they trusted that when John said, behold the Lamb of God, they knew this was the Lamb of God, Jesus. When John said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, they trusted that this is the sins of the world taking away Jesus. They trusted that in the depths of their sin, in the depths of our sin, in the moments in which, which we, we lie awake at night wondering what people think of us, in our attempts to even be redeemable or lovable, Christ comes to us despite us. And he says, trust me, I've got you. Faith is a trust that Christ is trustworthy. Faith is a trust that what he says is true, that he's not lying to you this morning. That in all our journeys to follow foe Jesus, our, our times of decorating him up, giving him makeover, the real Jesus plows through and on his horse with his word to cut down all the impersonators, throw them all aside because there are no impersonators for our Jesus. Because our Jesus comes to us as a dying Jesus on a cross and a risen Jesus. A dying Jesus to forgive us all our harlotry and a risen Jesus to prove to us that it's true. The verse I opened up with out of chapter 19, where it says, I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse, and its rider is called Faithful and True. Church, in all our faithfulness, Christ is faithful to us. He comes to us every time to forgive us our sins to make us his own because he did it once and he'll continue to do it even when we forget. And then he comes to us as the true one to cast aside all our other Jesuses that we think exist to be the one for us. And may that be so for you this morning. Thanks be to God. Amen.